Yeah, I think uh, you forgot that our thesis is uh, very funnables. Uh, I don't know why you picked these. I didn't find them to be funnable. I feel like there are some fun moments. There's some dancing. This was the worst Morgan Spurlock movie I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck is that? You did like supersize me. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. A couple of years ago, he he basically uh, like canceled himself because he's such a weird narcissist. I guess <laughs> it's like it's time. He was like, speaking of sexual harassment, I'm also guilty of it. Here's here's the things I feel bad about, and then they were just like, oh, okay, cool, bye. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. You think you're gonna cancel me? I'll cancel me. <laughs> I really doubt he ran that by his publicist. Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, your first and possibly last chance to save yourself from cinematic trauma. I am Mark Batavio. And I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're joined by award-winning documentary filmmaker John Nix to help us discuss one of the most unconventional and bizarrely disturbing nonfiction films of the last decade. It tells the story of the 1960s Indonesian mass killings as retold and gleefully recreated by the mass killers themselves. The film is Joshua Oppenheimer's Oscar-nominated 2012 documentary, The Act of Killing, as well as its 2014 companion piece, The Look of Silence. And now for the sound of podcasting. Ah. Uh. We have a very special guest today. Uh, John Nix is the director and editor of Beyond Barricades, the story of anti-flag, as well as a new documentary about San Diego noise punk artist Justin Pearson. Uh, but Seth, how do you know John? And then do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce him a little better? John's just always been in the Cleveland Akron music scene. He shoots amazing photography of bands, including my band, and has been very encouraging uh, to my band, I just remember John's always, he's just always so nice to Valley Girls anytime we play. I just always really appreciated that, especially in the earlier days. Um, and yeah, it takes very wonderful photos of bands and also got like his whole life of like sexy photos, like a whole world of sexy photos, uh, which is, I don't know what other word you would want to use, but they are sexy. The ones he takes of you, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a book that John has just come out with. That I'm very excited to hear about, and uh, he has made documentary about anti-flag, and he has recently coming out with uh, "Don't Fall in Love with Yourself," a documentary about Justin Pearson and the Locust as a just a just a phenomena, which is a I don't know, it's kind of a life changing band for me, and I know a lot of people, and I, I know you're all, you have like Justin in the documentary. This is not like some little YouTube snippet about the band or something. Like this is a real deal documentary, and I'm very excited to see it. Um, I don't know where you want to start, John, but you do many things. Well, first, first off, thank you. That was a super nice introduction. Uh, thank you both for having me on. I can make it nicer. Sexier. You have a good chin. Thanks. You're, weirdly, you're not the only person that said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure not. So, so uh, yeah, no. Um, I started doing documentary film work about 12 years ago. Uh, we've done a bunch of short films. Um, and then these are just like the two full lengths that we've finished up. 
uh, and put out. So I'm really excited about the new one. Uh, the Justin Pearson one's called Don't Fall in Love with Yourself. Uh, we started it, uh, oh man, uh, like four and a half years ago. It was, we started it before uh, COVID-19 and then it was almost done and then got kind of kneecapped by that for like a good year and a half where we had to kind of sit on our hands. So, but it's finally coming out. That's awesome. When are the like screenings going to be? So we have two screenings that are coming up in Cleveland. Um, one is at the Grog Shop on April 2nd. And then the other one is on April 4th down in Akron at the Nightlight. Uh, we're also start showing it at St. Vitus in New York on April 26th. That's so tight. Uh, which I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about it. They just like, they reached out to us uh, like a year ago or so. Uh, and I was like, yeah, fucking, of course. Of course we're going <laughs> to, we would love to come out there. Um, so we're working on West Coast uh, dates right now. It's been a little bit of a pain in the ass, but we're getting it figured out. And then uh, there's probably going to be one in Philly, but like no exact date. Uh, one in Atlanta. So it's just right now we're kind of like full steam booking all the screenings for it, and then it'll obviously come out and become more available to everyone later in the year. Well, John, I, I'm thrilled to have you here for this particular discussion because we are talking about documentaries today, and uh, you certainly would have kind of a, you know, insider perspective about what goes into filming and shaping and all the different decisions that go into making documentaries like this. Uh, and these were definitely, at least The Act of Killing was one of the most acclaimed documentaries of the past decade. If you, you know, look on Rotten Tomatoes or the critical consensus as it was coming out, was it kind of blew people away. So I am looking forward to getting your take on all of that stuff. You actually met joshua oppenheimer who made these movies i have a yeah i've 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 had a really long relationship with these movies um i went to uh toronto international film festival in 2012 when it did uh it's like north north american premiere and so i just happened to buy tickets by chance i was an idiot uh and i bought a bunch of like ticket vouchers and i was like okay you buy the vouchers and then you can just like buy the movies on the website and they're like, no, you just have to bring those vouchers uh, to like the office there and then pick stuff out from the catalog and hopefully it's not sold out. So once I arrived at TIFF, I was just like, okay, what, what do I want to see? Just like frantically flipping through the guide to the festival. And I saw the picture of like the fish restaurant with like the dancing girls coming out of it. And I instantly was just like, I don't know what the fuck this is about. I just want to, I need to see it. I need to know what this is. So I just like got the tickets for it. And we went to go see it and it just like, just melted my brain. Like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then after, afterwards, like Joshua Oppenheimer did a Q and a, but then he was just like, yeah, I'm just going to hang around the theater. I have nothing else to do. So if you guys just want to like hang out in the lobby, come hang out, hang and talk with me. Uh, so it was like a group of like 15 of us just like all throwing him a bunch of questions and him just like being very generous with his time. He's just like such a gentle, kind person. And it's such a brutal movie. It's it's a really interesting contrast in demeanor. I listened to a lot of interviews and commentary like with him. And it does seem like he is the genuine article that this is a this isn't just a movie for him. It's a mission. It's a it's a spiritual investigation of some sort. So that does not surprise me at all that like this guy would want to spend time and like just beyond the movie itself, like this is his life, his life's work or something. Yeah, I mean, he spent, I, it was seven or eight years over there. I mean, he became fluent in Indonesian while he was making the movie. 
it's just like such a, I mean, it's almost a decade of your life. And then he probably spent another three years after it. So it probably is about a full decade as far as like just the release. And there's so much work that he put into finding the right subject. He talks about it on the commentary track on the Blu-ray and Anwar Congo, the guy who the act of killing like revolves around, uh, was the 41st like person from this genocide that he had interviewed before he even like said like, Oh, it's this guy. Like I can feel something in this guy. So this is who it's going to be about. And even before that, there was, uh, I know it began as he was trying to interview survivors and tell the stories of the survivors who like made it through this or the, the, the children of the, of the, of, uh, of those who were murdered in the massacres in the sixties and everything like that. And they just kept on getting broken up or they would get in trouble or the, the police would find out about it and they would, they would put a stop to this talk. Cause it's very like, that's the whole thing. Like the winners are like the murderers are the winners and they control the government now. Uh, so they control the narrative and they want to continue to control the narrative, which is that this was all justified. So rather than de- admitting defeat, a lot of the, the victims and the and the families of the victims wound up saying that like you should not stop but go after the perpetrators and try and make a film about the the ones who did this um and that was the instigating factor for him going down this route yeah and just for anyone listening who doesn't know just really briefly um the documentary concerns something that happened in the 60s there was basically an attempted coup that failed in Indonesia. And the backlash essentially led to a military takeover of the government and this period of mass killings between 1965 and 66, uh, where with the nature of that, it's hard to get a really accurate tally of how many people were killed. I've seen estimates anywhere from 500,000 to 3 million. And it included many different groups, including ethnic Chinese and uh, basically anybody who they would accuse of being communist, whether that was true or not. It was supported by Western governments like the United States, uh, you know, during like the Cold War time. And at the time this movie was filmed, and to this day, these gangsters and military leaders and death squad leaders are still in power in the country. And the history books are basically being rewritten to kind of brush over this or make it seem like it was a noble uh, thing they did that saved the country. Um, but the film itself gives us very little real actual info or historical context besides this opening scroll that we get, which is kind of what Seth was saying. I think that this is, it's not, this is not really where you would go if you were in a scholarly way trying to learn about exactly what happened. And there's a reason that this is called the act of killing and not Indonesian mass killings of 65 to 66, that there's something else in a more general sense about the banality of evil and the way that the people justify it for themselves that's at play here. So, um, but the actual conceit of the movie, like you were saying, is basically handing the camera over to the killers themselves. And we get them recreating exactly how they did things, but also just deciding that for some reason we need uh, musical numbers or scenes that look like they're from a Western and it gets into very almost surreal, absurd territory. And I guess that's my first question for you guys is, is this a funny movie? And how, you know, what is that? Is, or is it just the what the fuck factor to it? How, how do you process a film like this? 
for me, uh, I really have always found uh, evil like to be very stupid and cartoonish. Uh, whether or not it, it, no matter how serious someone's trying to make it, uh, I have a real hard time with all the new Netflix style, like true crime documentaries that they're just pumping out where every single one of them is just like, oh, he was an apex predator and he was a genius setting up all these (laughs) evil traps. And it's just like, no, like, yeah, 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 it's a, yeah, yeah. Dahmer was a drunk dopey loser who could have gotten caught like 10 times. The cops were just like too afraid of getting a case of the gays or whatever by touching him and arresting him. Uh, and so like it's but it's the same thing with like Ted Bundy where it's just like yeah it, it, like he's very scary in the sense of like his cunning and intelligence around like doing his crimes but he was also like a pathetic kleptomaniac that was like a college dropout who couldn't keep a girlfriend like they're like these are like malformed fucked up people and like I think that you can always see the there's like a patheticness to people that end up doing very very bad things and so I think that these guys are no different where I think the movie for as dark as it can get and like nauseating at times as it can get when they're talking about exactly what they did to people. I do think that the, it just seems ridiculous at the same time. It's these two guys just, especially with active killing, it's two guys trying to build their own legend out as they picture it through the lens of like growing up watching movies and reenacting gangster films that they saw. And it's just like, it's like pathetic self-aggrandizing. It reminds me of the, to a lesser extent with like Andrew Tate and people like that, where it's these guys that just want to believe that they're so powerful. And then you look at them and you're just like, no, you're just like a weird, insecure loser who ended up like becoming a misogynist or a very violent person, you know? Absolutely. And there's such a, it's a greater conversation about um, like these, re- these reenactments or whatever you want to call them, these fantasies. Uh, which in, in some ways they are fantasies because they are like they're trying to depict uh, they're, they're they're trying to create some kind of impossible argument through uh, through film and artifice to basically convince an audience member and themselves that what they did was not horrible and it was like justified in, in what they do and it is like a conversation about the lies that many people throughout history and all of us in certain ways, like the, uh, the layers of denial and the lies we tell ourselves just to, just to get through certain things and uh, allow ourselves to do certain things, putting gas in your car or something like that. I mean, a lot of this movie does often, not directly, but you, you kind of feel it as an American audience member. And I've, I've heard Joshua talk about it kind of doubling as like, a lot of this falls back on America, like the narratives that we were throwing out there too, that like, uh, you know, we were, we were feeding this fire in a way of this red scare, this hatred of communism. And even beyond that, there is a greater conversation that comes to my mind that is the way, the way America often is trying to, f- has, has fed its propaganda machine, like that it was, it was okay. Like it was manifest destiny that caused us to, wipe out the entire race of people that were here before we were here um, for no real reason other than greed. I I think that's what's going on here, even at the most silly like reenactment levels of like them making gangster movies where they are in fedoras and like trying to 
put us put that spin on what they did um it, it's a it's a lot to take in yeah i think that uh, no matter how evil uh they come off or like how much like monsters they come off in the movie if you want to just use a word like that um i do think that they're incredibly human i mean because I, I think that what they're doing is they're rationalizing their lives i mean they're they're near the end of it it happened years decades and decades ago um and they have to look back and be like no this was good this was a worthwhile thing and i don't think that that's in its inclination that much different from people rationalizing a, a bad marriage or a job that sucked away decades of your life that you wanted to believe you took for good reasons or anything like that that people do all the time it's just uh writ large and it has huge like societal effects attached to it i think the the interesting twist here is that these are people who have never have never even had necessarily to justify what they did or be held accountable so you know these aren't people looking back um after history has demonized them or you know from a jail sentence or something that these are people who got uh, a lot of them very wealthy off of what they did they're still celebrated and generally they actually have a government and society that is accepting or at least pushing this narrative that they want it to be that what they did was actually heroic and the communists were all bad so it's fascinating to see them inside that context where they've never really been challenged about it. And it's very easy for them to make these justifications. So some of the more interesting moments for me is that as, you know, generally these are very well fortified people. They've had this same story and all of this time to build it and to be supported, you know, by everybody around them. And, but there are there are at least a few moments, there aren't that many, where they are, some of them are more candid about actually dealing with guilt on a personal level, about having nightmares, um, just from, again, I guess, the act of killing. So, you know, we do get one guy in particular who's, Seth and I, when we were watching this, we're trying to figure out exactly where he was coming from, because he, he seems to keep saying, basically admitting that it's all lies, and that they maybe shouldn't be telling the truth because of protecting their image. And uh, somebody has the line, even God has secrets. So there becomes a, there is a certain acknowledgement by some of them that, okay, maybe this was wrong or the thing being pushed is inaccurate, but we got to keep it that way. Um, but we don't, they don't always have that level of self insight. So I, I thought that that's the way that they've been so well protected makes this an interesting project. Yeah, it's as if the Germans won World War II or something and you're right. like getting footage from Germany and you're talking to a bunch of Nazis that are, of course, dreaming up all sorts of things to justify what they've done. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, Joshua's talked about this before in interviews where he he talked about like keying in on Anwar and being like the moment he, so the first thing he shot with him was going, there's a scene where he goes up on the roof of this like knockoff purse store and he demonstrates the way that he like strangled people. Uh, and he even brings like a tool along like this, like wire that's attached to a, a piece of wood. Horrifying. Yeah. And he's like, it's so surreal as a sequence because he starts dancing and he talks about how they would celebrate afterwards and uh it's just so nightmarish but joshua talked about how during that shoot he could feel this hesitation and this sadness inside of him 
that he didn't feel with a lot of other people. There are plenty of other people he interviewed that were just like completely unabashed, had never thought, uh, probably a second thought about what they had done in a good way or a bad way. But like Anwar clearly had some kind of hesitation and was probably used to just boasting because that's you could just do that. And he learned scripts to just kind of like, you know, recall the stories or whatever for people. But there was obviously something he could key into in there to maybe help break this person down. I think that that's an interesting part of this, is that this documentary feels like a punishment in a really interesting psychological way. Uh, and for as like gentle as Joshua comes off in interviews, in like when I met him, uh, I think there's a real uh, cathartic kind of cruelty to this movie where he basically, through these reenactments, he's almost doing like exposure therapy with these war criminals and it's forcing them to confront what they did in a way that isn't safe for them to just like blithely recall it. Yeah. And so because, and because they're confronting it for the first time in a way where they had to play their own victims, uh, they finally sort of broke down a wall and had to empathize with the people that they were rationalizing away as almost like a subspecies. It's almost like a... There's a, there's a tightrope there because some of it is them having a, a platform in order to attempt to do this this thing, which is, you know, maybe maybe even cathartic for them, like in a certain respect, um, like this whole boastful nature of like whether it's a full blown like which they get really like surreal and wild and full production value like reenactments or if it's just the guy on the roof showing you how he strangled a guy there's almost this like twitchy sort of like you wonder if they are getting some sort of personal release by talking about the like even the most gross aspects of these crimes so they can like give them to other people put the burden on other people which is interesting in itself as a transaction like a despicable transaction but it's interesting that through that, the director is trying to kind of turn that backwards on them so that they're sort of like not getting away. And the results are sort of varied. And it is like sort of this thing to track and try and follow through the movie. And it's not ultimately satisfying because there's no final satisfaction at the end of like this method. Like even even though it is like going to this like crazy place, like either the killer or Joshua is trying to do this kind of, I don't know, kind of impossible thing, which they, they kind of know in the back of their heads, like they're never going, the killers are never going to like ex get away with this in a, in a greater like ethical level um, in a conversation. Uh, and they're, they're never going to escape their, their guilt necessarily. And then Joshua is like, kind of knows in the back of his head perhaps that he knows that he's never going to fully get through to these guys like to like break them which they never really do break down and say like oh i'm sorry I, it, everything i did was wrong there's no like big like crying moment there's just little breaking points that we can only infer about which is interesting i think that Seth tapped into the central tension of this movie and not just within the movie but with the viewer and that is what I was a little, I I still feel is unresolved. Because um, when I first saw this movie like 10 years ago, uh, it did, you know, blow me away. And this time, I was a little more conscious of what exactly are the the fruits of this project. Because there is a lot at stake here. That there, 
this is giving a big platform and these resources to the perpetrators, you know, of this crime. So I, I was looking for two things. One would be some sort of insight into how they see themselves or maybe are seen by the other people in their country that they're living with and living side by side with the victims, which I think pretty much speaks for itself. We, they talk about their philosophy of being gangsters and they say over and over again how gangster means free men and they're very much romanticizing everything. Um, pretty much all of the justifications that you would expect. And I think the movie does lean a lot into you know, making them look foolish in that way. And uh, I, mean, I, we can, I can get into specifics later. But the second thing is, if this is really surreptitiously forcing them to grapple with what they did in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be, because it's being presented to them in this way. And I think that that puts a big burden on the two pretty much just two scenes in the film, which is one where uh, Amwar is filming his own torture and death and seems to be having some kind of difficulty on set, although that's left ambiguous. Um, and then the finale, which is probably one of the most famous parts of the film, where he basically is showing somewhere he committed these murders and just starts retching and uh, kind of dry heaving. And it's not clear exactly if this is remorse happening to him, or maybe even if there's a level of performance going on here. Or even if he's just sick, you know, like that's another aspect. We don't really get a voiceover telling us. Yeah, it's hard to say what's going on. It's like a mystery. And it's just, I don't know, there's a lot uh, at stake here for the results to be so varied maybe about what exactly was uncovered or if these people were even in on the joke enough to come away from it you know, embarrassed or with some level of insight themselves. Yeah, that that final scene uh, is is one of those things that, like, is incredibly haunting. Like, in the festival cut of it was even longer. I remember that scene. Maybe it's just my experience of it, but it felt like it went on, like, eight or nine minutes. Like, not, like, the three-ish or so that are in the movie. Um, I think that... I think it's I think it's a frustrating thing because I think that when you're making films that have a political perspective, I think the best you can hope for is sort of like an aesthetic win. You're not actually going to right any wrongs that way. There's only been a couple movies that have really seemed to achieve something like that. Like Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line is something that actually made like a material change fairly quickly after it. Um, but the fallout of this movie has completely shifted how Indonesians talk about their own history because these people were, and this is also the question of platforming too. I know it's like a really hot topic about whether or not to platform people as like a strategy uh, politically. Um, and I think that there's times when you shouldn't, and I think there's times when you shouldn't. It's all a case-by-case -case basis. That, that's my, my personal outlook on it. And I think in this one, by platforming them, the way it's, that Josh was talked about it is now because they're so openly just talking about it, and the news is able to comment on it because of this movie. It gave all the victims permission to talk about their own family experiences because it wasn't sort of like an open secret that everyone sort of knew that wasn't addressed on a cultural level. Like, it's not... These guys are boasting about it in the movie, but they didn't really openly speak about it culturally before the movie came out. So I, it, did, it did have a material effect. Like, you're not going to punish all these people. You're not going to right any of these wrongs. You're not going to go back in time and change how it happened. But I don't, I don't think the satisfying results happen in the movie. I think that the hope is that it has some sort of effect long-term on that culture. 
I, I, I agree, John. I think, uh, I mean, no one, there, there was probably no, I don't know, holdout for Joshua that he was going to somehow close the book. I think maybe in his like more optimistic days, he did like hope that he would have his moment where like he can bring them down and really, really bring them to a certain place. But he, like, this is like even the tiniest little little bit of making them squirm or making them budge a little bit or think a little bit is something uh, in the face of the exact opposite, which is like being rewarded with riches for doing the worst things you could possibly do. Also, the thing is, there is, uh, I mean, kind of to your point earlier about Ted Bundy and these figures that we hold up and everything, it, it, it is sort of shedding light in an effective way on who they are, which is like, there's nothing special about these guys. And they were just young kids. That's sort of the part of this that does make it so that it's like even they can use that as a very easy and convincing argument as to like why what happened happened which was like your government told a bunch of 20 year olds that they should go be heroes and uh they, they can they will be rewarded for defeating evil or whatever it is yeah and i think that the frustrating part comes from like wanting to basically see these people who are terrible people grow and uh I do think it's kind of a like liberal fantasy uh, situation where it's that whole like, oh, Ben Shapiro owned, like, oh, we proved you wrong and now you have to admit you're wrong and maybe you can grow. And there's that always doesn't this, happen. Yeah, exactly. There's always this one. It's just like the same thing in movies, like Marvel movies or whatever, where like main, any kind of mainstream action film or whatever, where people like, oh, learned the error of their ways and now they help the good guy in the end. Like, you're never going to convert people like this over and you're never going to get them to admit everything they did is wrong and that they're an evil person. And so it's the same thing with watching any kind of debate on any any subject. Like, even if you see someone get trounced in a, in a debate where, like, they had no rebuttal to any point that was made and you just see them get just destroyed, they still are just going to, like, go to the next college and do another speaking event. Like, they're not going to admit that they were wrong. Yeah, and this, you know, it's certainly not the job of documentaries or any work of art to solve a problem. Or, you know, that's that's just, that's outside of the realm, uh, really, of artistic expression, I think, in general. Mm-hmm. At least that's not, like, the end goal of it. And that's certainly not what happens here. And um, I think that... You know, the real question is just how much light is shed, what insight is happening, you know, how does this work as a movie just on its own terms? And I think it is it is tricky. It is playing with fire anytime that you're doing something from the perspective of the oppressors, which like a we talked about uh, the film in the company of men a few episodes back, um, along with the film Naked, which are just good examples of taking ex- the, you know, perspective of the the bad guys basically and aligning you with them to where, you know, not that you approve of what they're doing, but that we're telling the story from their angle to see what insights can be uncovered from that. Yeah. And maybe with this movie, it, it depends on a large part with the audiences that this could be something that might be more effective um, for somebody who is living in Indonesia and is finally gets to see a, a counter narrative that's making these clowns look like the clowns that they are. Uh, in all the different ways that they're trying to paint themselves and how inauthentic all of that is. Um, but, you know, I, there have been some 
somewhat ethical considerations uh, as far as criticism of the film goes that I'd like to get your guys' take on because there are certain elements here. Uh, one of the most disturbing, the hardest to watch scenes for me personally uh, is when we're following around one of these gangsters or former gangsters and he's basically shaking down these merchants for money and forcing them to to you know keep giving him more and more payments. And in this case, it's specifically for the film that like the money is allegedly going to be going towards them financing this project. But also, I don't know, it seemed to me that the guy he's following around doesn't really do this all the time, but he's performing for the camera that he wants to seem badass and like this is what he does all the time and he he's taking more and more money. And it's kind of the same thing as when they do the recreations, they have these extras that are made up of sometimes what seem like they could be families of the former victims, including, you know, children and women who after some of these scenes, like can't stop crying, or uh, there's a woman who seems clearly like she's been traumatized by this village burning filming scene. We also get another guy who tells a story. He's basically playing a torture victim, but he tells a story about how his father was killed. And he's like trying to laugh like while he's telling it. Yeah. Like, like, I'm just telling a joke or something. But then afterwards they're having a the the kill actual killers are having some discussion and the guy is like silently crying. Like they're not filming the movie at all. So yeah. there is a, a sense of like none of this would be happening as far as re-traumatizing these people who are participating if it wasn't for the film that the act of killing was make having them recreate. And I don't know, I think that's another interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have some, in, some, some info for, for that. So, uh, so when it comes to like the village burning, like scene where the woman faints and stuff like that, uh, explicitly they chose to like not have any, those are all relatives of the direct like killers that did it. It was like wives and children and like brothers and, and like cousins and people like that that were directly related to the people that did it like expressly to not re-traumatize people that went through it. The only person in the movie that uh, is involved that had family members die was the journalist that's crying, who's like reenacting a torture sequence. He was actually a captive of them and managed to like escape and survive it. Uh, And because he's a journalist, he wanted to do it. He basically was just like, this is my story and this is how I can help do this by like putting myself basically in like the lion's jaws, more or less. Uh, so like that is all, really good to know. I'm glad yeah. that you had that information. That makes me yeah, feel yeah, a lot yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, as far as like the shaking down stuff, I think they did that fairly regularly, but I have no doubt that he was uh, building it up for the camera and asking for more money than he would otherwise do, which I do think is an ethical worry. I've, I've thought about this stuff a lot just because I haven't had to work on a project where uh, I hate my subject. <laughs> like... I don't know that I could do one of those movies. Like I, I have so much respect for people like Errol Morris, who is also an executive producer on this, where it's just like, I can sit across from Donald Rumsfeld, like, and like be calm about it. Uh, And so I really, I find it fascinating when people like Joshua or Errol Morris or whoever can do these movies and like spend years of their lives talking to these just like absolutely awful people uh, and build a relationship with them and earn their trust and like mask well enough to not show their true intentions. Um, and 
I think there's an ethical dilemma there with that even where like you're not being honest with your subject. But at the same time, I think that, I mean, people in like a fascistic level of power are like never, they'll take advantage of any kind of ethical choice you make and remain entirely unethical the entire time. Like, I don't think that like setting a good example for these people will teach them better. I think it's a big problem on, on like on the left in general that I have where it's just like, you can you can like use perfect language and like try to make exactly ethical arguments and go about everything ethically. And the fact is, is like the people that you're going up against don't give a fuck. Like they will kill people and they will steal yeah. every every election. They'll they'll they they have no problem persecuting anyone that's not like them. And like meanwhile, you're being like, but I'm being a perfect perfectly behaved person. And like right. I'm gonna reach when, across the yeah. aisle. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> remember it's like, me yeah. better for this. You know? Yeah, they don't they don't care. It's like Pelosi hugging Lindsey Graham. It's just like this is a person that like openly is doing bills that are harming people that are going to get trans kids killed. Like and like that like you're just sitting here like it's your day job. Like you're not around a coffee machine at some dumb business where it does like what you're doing doesn't matter where you're all working bullshit jobs. Like you were some of the most powerful people in the world and you're enabling those people to feel comfort in their prejudice, you know? So personally, from my perspective, I feel like it's not unethical to like be dishonest with people like this, like tricking Rudy Giuliani and Borat too, to me is like, fine. Like who cares? Fuck that dude. That dude is responsible for so much awfulness in the world. Yeah. We are all for that. I think that the one of the, I think the scene maybe worked for me the best because it does at least it may be the closest it comes to really kind of holding them to the fire or putting them in a weird situation, almost on a Borat level. Uh, is a scene where they have, I'm trying to remember who he is, if he's like a defense minister or maybe he's the leader of that like a Pancasilla youth group basically comes to visit this set and they're getting everyone revved up to be the communist killers and the, you know, the gangsters. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels scripted almost. He gives it's them wild. A, yeah. He, like, he gives them a pep talk and everything like show, we got to show them how strong we are. And then they actually film the scene and they just seem like raving, bloodthirsty, like rioting gang or something. And afterwards, <laughs> you just see the you see the guy's face after he goes, hits, yells cut. And he's like, you know, I mean, I'm not really sure this is the image that we want to <laughs> project. You could just hear like yeah. John Cleese playing him in a sketch. Being like, well, <laughs> maybe that's going a little too far there, uh, you know saying that you're going to cut their heads off and drink their blood and things. Maybe we can pull that back a little bit, but we still want to show them that they are inhuman and should be killed. Uh, Yeah, even more interestingly, he starts to walk that back then and then say, well, but we do want to project strength, so maybe use it at this part of the movie um, so that we can scare them and make sure this doesn't happen again. And... uh, (laughs) That was one of the the moments that really did seem like they were making them squirm in like a, in a purposeful way, whether they even planned for that to happen or not. But uh, that's actually uh, Joshua talks about in the commentary too, where he's he said that's the only time he was afraid for his life. Like he was, he felt pretty comfortable with doing what he was what he was doing and how he was holding himself. But he was like, oh, they're gonna they're going to realize what we're doing. They're going to kill us today. Like we're never going to get away. We don't have like go bags ready to go. Like we're not set to just flee the country. Uh, And he's like, but for whatever reason, like he just like changes his mind and he's just like, well, I guess it's fine that we're doing this. And then just like they managed to get away. 
uh, I just I couldn't imagine being in that situation. It seems insane. He pulls it off, and it, and it is like such a telling, powerful moment that, uh, like, similar to the other killer that we spoke to, who talks about how you just need to, uh, you know, killing is bad. It is the word we did wrong. We did the wrong thing, but we just need to create excuses for ourselves, and that is literally what is admitted here. At, that like. Yeah, I I know. Yeah, like I'm 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 ahead of this whole thing. I'm in charge of this whole thing, and I know what we're doing. So like, but he's like saying it basically on camera, which is very wonderful, to, uh, cathartic in its own way to hear, even if it is something we already knew. Uh, which I get is a frustrating aspect of this movie, perhaps. But again, it's just going to be built in, um, and it is just. The only thing you can do in this situation is to go in and just try and start some uncomfortable conversations. And I don't I don't think there's much more you can do, because even at that point, like even at just 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 that point, he's already fearing for his life just at the flick of like a, a flicker of this uh, general's eye sort of. Adi's the one that bothers me the most. He's the one that's like, yeah, we did wrong and we should talk about it and stuff like that, because he's this he's like a slithery like contrarian throughout the movie where I think he says a lot of true things, uh, especially when Anwar is talking about like his guilt and stuff like that. Like it's really bizarre when they're on the docks and he's just like, Oh, there's just like a problem with your brain. You just need to take like, you need to go to a neurologist and take like brain vitamins. So you don't have nightmares anymore or whatever it is <laughs> that he says. And then like, that hit me really hard. Yeah. But then he, but then he's in the cab and he's just like, Acute one accusing Joshua of being a communist, but on top of that, like, be like, yeah, the Hague doesn't give a fuck. Like, who should I? Why should I give a shit? Like, and so he's just doubling back on the things that he says to Anwar, like when he's away from him, and now he's like back to being just like, well, hey, I did it, and I did it. like, what do I, you know, what am I gonna do? I can't take it back, so like, I should just be proud of it, basically, because it's because it's more convenient and it, it gets him through the day, you know. Because yeah, he can't do anything. Yeah, and he's not wrong. Like the Hague isn't gonna do anything about it. I mean, it's just like we didn't prosecute anyone in the Bush administration after Iraq, and we did. We're, we're never. We don't hold people in these power positions accountable because what that does, and I think that this movie plays into the idea of it, is writing your own cultural narrative it's them reacting reenacting their own dreamed up version of their own story that has nothing to do with reality and i think that that's what basically all nationalism is about it's about crafting a narrative for you to feel proud of and if you tear that down by showing that it's flawed at its core then you've like lost the entire threat and it's just like well we can't we can't put a president in jail. We've never done that before. We have to show that they're good people at the core of it, even if they do wrong, you know? And so none of these people are ever going to be prosecuted. Like the hope is, I think at best, like they come to grips with what their past is. And it's like kind of the same thing way we do with like Native Americans or whatever. I guess, Which he brings up. Where yes. it's like, you're, they're not going to, yeah, yeah. Like they're not going to do anything about it, you know? They're not going to suddenly just be like, oh, let's do a bunch of reparations. Let's like try to make this right. Uh, let's throw all these people in jail. They're just going to be like, well, that's the past. And sorry about that. Uh, okay, we're good now, right? Yeah. And when you bring up like the, you know, the Bush administration and whether we were living through it at the time or afterwards, where you know that there's going to be no repentance or self-reflection. And you see that with the, you mentioned there, a Morris documentary where it's just a feature length interview with Donald Rumsfeld. And maybe the reason that. I don't know, that's not the most uh, exciting movie is that at best all it could be is this just 
study of what it looks like to evade questions, you know, for two hours. And sometimes all that leaves you with to do is this, you know, like daily show kind of style thing where all you, all you can do is just constantly keep trying to show how foolish they look. And I, I guess that was the, a lot of what I took away from this movie this time. And I should say too, that one of the things that from this time watching it was me thinking, I do not remember this being almost three hours long. And it, it turns out that when it first came out and I probably watched it like on Netflix, it wasn't a two hour cut, but we watched a like two hour and 45 minute uh, director's cut, which has kind of replaced that at this time. And I think that didn't really help it because it did seem to add in a lot more almost extraneous things. Uh, I think the most, uh, the thing that stuck out to me most was this kind of long interlude with this guy who's running for parliament, who, who uh, he eventually fails, but we see him looking plenty stupid in all these outfits and everything throughout the whole time. And maybe there's maybe too much stuff like that, where as someone who's already a member of the choir was just almost getting repetitive of showing how clownish these people actually can be. And maybe that's just me trying to like pinpoint why I was so much more ambivalent about the movie in general this time. And I think the cut that we watched was part of it. But yeah, there's there's plenty. Maybe it just just goes back to that kind of Rumsfeld problem where uh, I kind of get the point quickly. And then the the more that it goes on, uh, it's just the morbid absurdity of it all <laughs> that is what's so kind of shocking and it absolutely leaves an impact. Yeah, I, I again, I, I actually, I'm I'm usually against having multiple cuts of movies or like a more cut down version of something. Uh, in this case, I do think that like they both work well. Uh, it just kind of depends on who you are and how you want to view it. I I personally enjoy the director's cut one. Maybe it's because that's the cut that I saw initially. Um, but I think that that I've watched the shorter cut, and I think it it captures everything that's in the longer one. I think the longer one just has more of a vibey tone to it. Um, and I like self indulgent stuff. Like I'm down for like a four hour movie where like there's a bunch of like needless scenes <laughs> and stuff. Uh, it's just like a taste thing. I don't think one or the other is better. I think it really just depends on the audience. Um, but going back to something you said with the the whole Donald Rumsfeld known unknown documentary. I think that this movie feels very uh, like proto-Trump in the same way that Unknown Known did. In so what he was trying to do when he did Unknown Known is is just recapture what he did essentially in like Fog of War, where he gets McNamara to admit that Vietnam was a giant mistake and we never should have done it, which was like an earth-shaking thing to get someone to admit on camera. Uh, but the thing is, is that there's just so much more media savvy now in the conservative wing of the party where like they just don't give a fuck like their brand at this point post bush is just vice signaling it's just like no i am an unrepentant piece of shit what are you going to do about it in a lot of cases and so i think that that's why unknown known is so dissatisfying is he's just like no i'm never going to admit anything on camera i don't give a shit if i look dishonest like, as long as I don't admit it, it's not true. It's the same way that they tell you to never admit to a crime. Like, even if you've done it. Like, if you can get away on some technicality, then great. Uh, and I think that these guys are the same way, where it's just like, they they know that they're not going to be punished so they can say whatever they want. And it's like, what are you going to do? 
So I think that that's also why it's dissatisfying is like in, in like the, the pre Trump era, there used to be able to be like a sex scandal that would take you out of office and you would just like have to admit guilt because there was this sort of unspoken rule where you would just like, you're just like, well, I, they talk, call me cheating on my wife or whatever. I guess I have to just stop being in office because I'm known as a dishonest person. And now they're just like, nah, fuck that. I did a million things that were wrong and I'm never going to leave office. I'm never going to say sorry. Fake news. Yeah, just lie over and over until enough people believe it's true, you know? Sure, and the people in this movie don't have to lie about it and they can, uh, you know, still just be proud of it. And maybe that is where that certainly seems to be the Trump playbook and more and more where uh, the more blatant people in Congress or the Senate or anywhere in the government are, are headed towards they just be unapologetic about it and then you don't have to worry about anything. Mm-hmm. And so I'll kind of I'll kind of say my final word here before we move on to the look of silence because it is it is quite a different experience and we we lose a major part of the conceit with this. So I want to make sure we give at least a little time to that. Sure. Um, but I want to mm-hmm. make sure everybody else has a chance in case there's anything else you wanted to just add in or wrap up or summarize about the act of killing before we switch gears a little bit. Um, and I think that we've touched on uh, pretty well the, the contradictions that are at play here, and it definitely is fascinating, and this is a very bold movie. And um, if I sound a little more negative than everybody else, that's just kind of me grappling with what was uh, a much more conflicted experience for me this time. And maybe it just goes back to uh, the example I was giving earlier about in the company of men, which I think is so powerful and works because it is about something that's hidden, that it's about uh, on one side, harm, you know, seemingly harmless corporate middle management types. And then the friend who's a nice guy and seeing the die, how that dynamic works between them and how the nice guy is actually maybe even more depraved than the outright sociopath. And that kind of formula is kind of see I wasn't doesn't really work for me if say it's about Nazis as opposed to you know people with something to hide and maybe that's the dynamic at play here that there what just wasn't as much to uncover especially at this length for me um, and that really maybe the best the best way is if you are starting from a place of being used to these people being romanticized. And maybe that depends on exactly what your experience is with the topic and the audience, that maybe this would be more revelatory if you were coming from that place where you're used to seeing these people in power, as opposed to someone like, you know, me who is more on the outside, you know, looking in. But I definitely think it's an audacious piece of work. And Uh, Like John said, absolutely something that you wouldn't forget for better or for worse. Um, For me, just going as far as calling it brilliant or important, I think oversells maybe the results of the overall project. For me, there is something worthwhile in this movie still about it being so meticulously put together. It's a fine line to talk about a movie like this where it is like issue based, but it is like for me, like such an astounding, like endeavor work of art, like the way it is all put together and presented is quite fascinating and does create like a unique experience and atmosphere for, for someone to take in that is more than just, uh, like going in to get some information or 
gets uh, uh, get from X to Y or something like that. It is about something greater. I think it's more than just Indonesia. It's it is like quite obviously everywhere that the uh, narr- narratives are being enacted and like, but w- w- which is common knowledge. But I think spending more time with it is what makes you. It's not something we always do. It's just something we say really quick that there is like, oh, yeah, like America uh, came up with this brilliant idea called Manifest Destiny in order to justify genocide. But actually, like spending time in there and meditating and weathering like the pain of like witnessing like what it what it is to try and really live and believe these lies that harm and destroy lives is an is an experience that i just couldn't help but really just feel in in a big way i feel like this will be a good way to sum up my thoughts with it i think that the amount of bravery that went into making it uh it like absolutely justifies it as sort of uh one of like the great great documentaries in my mind uh i just remember being in a theater at that premiere and you see the credits come up and more than half the names are listed as anonymous in it because they can't take credits for working on it. They basically had to work with him in secrecy while they were trying to get this movie made, like people that li- Indonesians that he was working with. And, you know, at some point he hopes to be able to release it like with their names uh, included in it. But I just, I just remember like the audience just being completely silent watching anonymous, anonymous, anonymous go by for each credit. Uh, and, that kind of goes into my general philosophy on film. Like, film is a group art form. It's about like working together as a team to achieve some sort of greater goal. Uh, I really hate auteur theory, like where pe- people are just like, oh, yeah, of course, it's just, it all belongs to Godard or whoever. Each movie is just like his own personal creation where his vision is coming directly from his brain onto the screen. Uh, the like just the amount of human risk that went into making this movie in that place for a decade it just seems insane to me uh and incredible and like is absolutely uh like a huge factor that i think about a lot when i've rewatched this movie is just like how many of those people could have just ended up dead uh for even being involved with making it yeah and when if we're talking about then the companion film the look of silence or sorry, the yeah, that's what it's called, right? Yeah, you got it. Okay, I'm getting all all of my the blank of blanks mixed up. <laughs> I was actually kind of curious if this came out of the same footage of this whole t- you know the whole time that he was filming, or if this was something he returned to do later. Uh, I didn't really find any information about that. Do you know anything by chance, John? Yeah, he was shooting it simultaneously. So basically, he was like, "I'm going to make these movies," and then as he started interviewing more and more of these war criminals. Uh, and he met Adi, the main guy from the, like the protagonist of the, for lack of a better term, uh, of, of the look of silence. Uh, he realized like those are two different things that he should pursue as far as perspective on it. So a lot of what ends up in the look of silence is him basically fishing around trying to find who would end up being the main character of the act of killing and then focused on him for that aspect of the story. Yeah, and I think it was definitely good that he was able to recognize, you know, what was a film and what was a different film within everything. And it kind of reminds me of uh, Claude Landsman, what he did with the whole Shoah project, which mm-hmm. was, you know, 
he already had a nine hour, you know, movie made of interviews about the Holocaust and in the decades since then he's continued to release just completely new films from yeah. all of the footage that he got. And I, I can't imagine what was into sifting through all of that, but it, that did bring that to mind. This is my first time that I saw the look of silence and it definitely has a, it, there, you know, there's ways in which it is similar that we do have, obviously it's about the same topic and we have the same kind of people who are in control and never really re repent or show any kind of remorse beyond little hints uh, but we lose the whole aspect here of the them being given the means to make their own film about it. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're actually following around a, a brother of one of the victims. And we spend time with him and his family. And he is basically going and confronting each of these people in interviews that, to me, it wasn't totally clear what the auspices were uh, that these were set up under. Because um, he is an eye doctor of some kind or an optometrist. So... He is giving a lot of these people eye exams, and sometimes it doesn't, he seems like he might not be. And then it seems like he kind of springs these questions on them and then reveals that one of his family members is one of the people who were killed. Uh, and that's yeah. kind of the starting point on this. Yeah, I, I, I like that as like a metaphor. I think that's kind of the con that's the aesthetic conceit of the movie where like the act of killing is all about re re basically re-traumatizing these guys by making them reenacting it. Um, and where this is like, he's trying to get them to see what they did for what it is while giving them eye exams for new pairs of glasses since he's an optometrist. Um, and I do like, I, I like how, uh, heavy-handed that is while being absolutely true it's one of those things that if you wrote it i think uh someone would be like this is long right ago, don't you think? Um, <laughs> right yeah but but i i do think um my thoughts going into this is i i i'm not sure why this isn't the one that's easy for people to get into like i understand why the act of killing has the reputation it has because it is so shocking you're spending time time with all of these mass killers but this is the more human one it's shorter there's a lot of heart in it. It's just like such a human film. There's so many moments that are like cry worthy if you're if you're feeling vulnerable enough in the moment. And uh, I I think it's interesting that I feel like way way less people have seen this. When I think this is the one that could grab like the suburbs, you know? Yeah, I agree. It must have been. I feel like it must have just been that it was constantly like in the wake of. The, the act of killing and it's like always associated because it's it, it's afterwards i i i agree it would be less le less of a strange and le less is in the way of getting to the heart of the matter with this movie which i do think is to its credit um i it's hard for me to say like which one i think i prefer like but there is something i think this one is more more effective overall as far as like just getting to it and uh it doesn't ha i think it it having it it's having itself divorced from the idea of reenactment and a lot of the more like fantastical and unique aspects of the act of killing like um all the fantasy sequences and all that i i th i think it winds up being more effective without those and i i, I think it is a in a way more powerful movie in its own way i agree and i think basically with what john said about it being a more emotional and human experience is what made it work at least a little better for me because 
the trade-off, of course, is this is less of an aesthetic experience. And that's probably why it, it didn't quite get the eyeballs or have the reputation for it. Um, but I think that that trade-off was worth it in this case. And we do get other things here we don't get in the other film. You know, we do get this scene in a classroom where we're seeing how kids are taught still about how communists are evil. And that classroom includes the child of the man who is confronting people in this. And we even we even see like uh, people who he's interviewing actually trying to intimidate him in real time, like insane. You know, you keep asking questions like this and this is all going to happen again. Like you're on the side of the communists. And that was something I surprisingly don't remember a whole lot happening in the act of killing where here it really you really feel like this present tense. Like, don't don't pick at this wound because I'll go right back around and do this to you again. Yeah, the one the one really twitchy guy it, who's so he's so uncomfortable throughout his entire confrontation uh, when he like whip turns at the camera and is just like Joshua never asks questions that are this probing. Why are you doing <laughs> yes. those? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Joshua, would, you know, he did he didn't have the personal experience. It was something that he found out about and just like became obsessed by. But you know, I mean, like Adi will never know this brother, and he like he gets to see the the wake it's left with his family. I mean, his like parents are completely broken, you know? And like, I, I don't have kids. I don't have plans on having kids, but I can't imagine like that borderline it creates in your life uh, watching like, you know, the parents have been interviewed in true crime documentaries where like, yeah, of course, like in a lot of cases, people are just left like husks and like they're, they're so clearly just like husks, like trying to hang on in this movie. And it's so sad to see. And so like he obviously had to grow up seeing that every day of his life. And so I can't imagine the amount of resentment. So the fact that he's even so he's aggressive in it in in confronting these guys, but he's so even handed and it, it's like it's so hard for me to understand how he could even hold back again, you know? Yeah, that that is the the central conceit of this movie is what that man says, which is one of the killers that we Witness that uh, there is uh, Joshua follows them, and it's very similar to the act of killing, where he's following around killers, and they're 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 telling their like what feels like big fish stories, uh, like of like your dad telling you like, oh, I caught this big fish. Only it's these awful people telling you like taking you to the very place that they did the most horrible things you can imagine, and grinning about it and laughing about it. This is turned on its head. That it is now like we we constantly are cutting to um, our main character here, who is uh, who's is it his father? His father was killed in the massacre. Uh, older brother. Older brother was killed in the massacre, yeah. and he is watching this footage that Joshua has found by doing what Joshua does in active killing, which again, like, can be kind of controversial that he is infiltrating by sort of putting like, I am your friend. I am like, maybe not probing as hard as I could, or I, I'm at least like, I'm a foreigner. I, I'm coming at this from a different angle. But now he's giving this to someone who has actually, who is actually a person from Indonesia who has been affected by this directly. And now this person is bringing that footage and that knowledge to the feet of the people who, who wronged him which I think is a whole other thing and is like, it, it makes it so much more personalized and zeroed in. I, I like that so much of this also has to do 
with him, not only just like um, our, our, our main character, who is anonymous, I believe. He's speaking to both the killers and quite often there is like the killer's daughter or someone else there who is aware of it, like what happened in some respect, but not exactly. And they are also hearing some of these horrific things for the first time and having varied results uh, occur where some of them are like obviously appalled and then other ones like later in the film, I find really fascinating and uh, we can talk about it that there is like one of the sons is just like i didn't know about this i don't want to hear about it i like every, everything is fine like everybody's constantly reiterating like why do you have to rock the boat which is such a thing that like everyone deals with when you're dealing with trying to like bring truth like uncomfortable truth in a conversation it's like why do you have to rock the fucking boat we were fine before you did this why can't we all just get along like good hippies or something you know Oh well, that's actually my favorite line in any of the in either of these movies. Like, I think that it just captures the surreal, almost satirical nature of what's going on, uh, and again, just like makes the villain kind of the villains or like adjacent to the villains so cartoonish. Like the line is, "Why? Why are you bringing up the past? Why can't we all just get along?" Like the military dictatorship tells us to. Oh my yeah. god! It, it is just like such an insane line. It's like out of RoboCop. Like it. It sounds like a very quiet part out loud. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just so unself-aware. It, it's such an insane thing to say, and it's just like, yeah, it's, it's right there. The thing you said. <laughs> yeah, and that element of just direct confrontation is what we get in this one that we don't really in the act of killing that they are directly he- held to the fire. I guess about that, which. It, in terms of the actual perpetrators, is really no more effective in terms of uh, results or getting them to look inward. Maybe they they squirm and get a little more uncomfortable, but it is with the members of their family that we tend to get those more varied results. Where mm-hmm. we have on one hand somebody's daughter who is sitting there, and at first she seems to be like, "Yeah, we're proud of of his role in freeing our country," and then she sits there and listens to him talking about drinking the victim's blood and collecting it into a cup so that they will uh they won't go crazy and you can see how disturbed she becomes and she eventually says please forgive my father and do i recognize you and please consider us your family he's senile now i welcome you and that really was a a kind of just interesting study of human nature we're on the other side you know you have the son who just gets upset about everything and there is an old widow who at one point apologizes and then seems to kind of get upset about it again afterwards. So you never quite know what you're going to get. Um, he even confronts his own uncle, who turns out to be a prison guard. And his whole tack was just, I didn't know what they were doing until he gets yeah. him to admit, oh, yeah, someone told me. Yeah. The classic Nazi argument thing. Or just like, I was doing what I was told. I didn't I didn't hurt anybody directly, you know, that thing. Yeah, it feels so much like Showa where they're they're talking to the like train conductor that operated the trains to take them into Dachau. And it's just like, yeah, dude, you knew. Like, you can bury it away and rationalize it away however you want. But, like, you knew, all these other people knew, the surrounding villages knew. Like, I understand on some level, like, maybe the kids that were incredibly young didn't know. But I feel like as adults, they have to know. On some level, they have to know that it happened. 
But if they didn't, I mean, I understand having such a violent range of emotions about trying to reprocess your entire idea of this person uh, in your life, like based on new information. You know, I mean, that's a lot to process. So I understand like having uh, a violent knee jerk reaction to it, especially someone like your parents. And a need to, again, formulate some kind of rebuttal real quick or, or a fantasy to believe in. Um, to continue to believe in because it's just easier. Like otherwise, like what the fuck do we do? Why can't we all just follow this? Like she like doesn't say it, but like why can't we just all follow the script here? Like we were all fine before we started talking about it. Like we just did things, and we don't. If we just, as long as we just don't, don't talk about it, it's fine. In those interrogate borderline, like they feel like interrogation scenes, even though like yeah, our our anonymous character is just so. He's some he's something to behold on camera. Just like every like he has such a like strong face. He has such a strong look about him that rarely breaks, even in the most like intense parts of this, where he's like going with people who survived to the Snake River where they were all like massacred and things like that and thrown into the lake and stuff, which is like really intense. There 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 is something like just one of a one of a kind about this particular man uh, that is just really striking to watch. Yeah, I feel like it's where the title has to come from, right? Like the look of silence. Like it's just like, like a like look. He just there's so much dead space in these interviews, and and that's definitely a thing that's like can easily be used by people like documentarians and journalists, uh, where like if you just don't talk, people will keep talking, and so if you give them enough room, they will like hang themselves. Like it's it's a very well like known tactic in interviews. And I do think that the him just staring at them like unblinkingly makes them go like, what the fuck do you want from me? Like, and just start saying more things. It almost made me think of like Nathan Fielder of all people in some of the scenes uh, yeah. this time. Cause no one can just yeah. stare and give you nothing but dead air than he can. And I yeah, kind of got I'm that huge, vibe. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Nathan Fielder and of uh, John Wilson. I don't know if mm. you've watched his show, but yeah, but like they both are so good at masking uh, because I mean they're autistic, um, so that it's just like a skill that they have. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it's just like it, I feel the same thing when I watch this movie where I'm like I don't I I am a bad liar and I do not know how like people are so good at like just hiding it because when I would hear something as crazy as like oh yeah I, I'm not crazy because I drank their blood if you don't drink their blood if you kill them you go crazy. Uh, I would just be like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I there's no way my head wouldn't like turn like a dog hearing an answering machine. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so crazy. It, it's just, like, so people like Nathan Fielder and, and him that can just sit there and just be like, yeah, keep going, are are just nuts to me. The drinking blood would have got a classic. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the keeping a severed Chinese woman's head to scare people from your house away. Oh um, God. That's it. But, but I threw it away eventually. Don't worry. I, I threw it away eventually. Don't worry. So, yeah, I do think that this, he, he happened upon a really good subject. I mean, just like he did in the last film, but just on the other side of the divide. And it does give it a little more room to open up and expand to seeing him interact with his own mother, who's scared for him going out and even doing this and kind of seeing how that generation reacts to things and then getting just little glimpses of his own family, you know, his own wife's ambivalence and his, uh, you know, his small young children 
and what, you know, how I'm just imagining how this might be something that they process in the future, given what we see happen in the classroom and with him trying to counter that narrative. Uh, so it does feel like there's, to me, like there's a little more room to dig in here too. And you can still feel that fear from the threats that he gets from people being interviewed to him, not even saying what village he's from. Like you can almost tell they're trying to target him. And uh, there's some kind of a live wire energy to that. Yeah, you can feel the stakes that uh, that are present in his life. I mean, like he's putting his life on the line. There's that really tense scene between him and his wife where she's just like, if you told me this is what this movie was going to be about, I would have said no. Why didn't you tell me? But you also get to see cause and effect in this one more than you do in The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing, you're kind of just like sitting inside of a fever dream where this one... It's such a devastating scene after he talks to his uncle, who was a guard at the jail where they kept the com- supposed communists uh, before they went and slaughtered them, and probably is responsible for his brother's death indirectly. Uh, and when he goes and tells his mom, it's just like devastating because she has to recontextualize how she thinks of her own brother, too, the same way as the children have to think about their own parents. And it's, I think that's part of what separates this is you see people, I think, get closer to changing or at least change how they view things, where I think active killing is much more about rationalizing your own beliefs. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head. And uh, this movie was nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars, just like Active Killing was. Neither of them won. Um, but it, it's interesting to imagine where joshua oppenheimer's career is going to go from here does he have more footage that is he could continue to shape out of this because as far as i know he at least hasn't made a feature length film since this came out in 2014 do you know anything more about that john uh yeah he's working on a narrative right now um it's some kind of a sci-fi film i forget i forget what it's called um but it's got some pretty big name actors in it so i don't know if that's like a go go or if it's still in development but i know that that's been talked about for a little while um, and he has a ton of short films that have been released by a couple like independent distributors. He has a ton of, of shorts that he made prior to making this movie. But yeah, I mean, he seems like he's been kind of hibernating for a while. He's probably been trying to get some projects on the ground, or maybe he's even in the middle of something that people don't know about. But I, I don't know. I, I know that he, like, there's no way he can go back to Indonesia after this. Like, he gets death threats constantly from people there. So I doubt, like, he, I'm sure he could go there and then he's just like, would just immediately get get disappeared you know so i doubt he's gonna touch this anymore would be my guess i feel like you can't drop this bombshell and then walk right in the room and be like hey remember me what's up oh no (laughs) yeah he's not invited to that party anymore (laughs) okay according to wikipedia oppenheimer has been announced that he will be directing a musical starring tilda swinton um oh wow that is sign me up man (laughs) <laughs> yeah i hope it's sure. a sci-fi musical that would, that would be nice she's been working with so many good people lately i love her like i just saw a memoria with her a couple months ago and it just like blew me away hopefully it's not a fictional you know telling of the same story now <laughs> yeah, song yeah hopefully starring tilda swinton oh god <laughs> yeah i feel like you have i feel like you have to move i mean i'm sure it'll like haunt him forever spending so much time with these people but i feel like at some point you have to just like look away and maybe not think about this anymore Oh my God! Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I guess we should still keep looking. Uh, should we go around with our final thoughts? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we can just go the same order that we did before. I am interested to see ultimately if you, you know, would choose between these two films. And uh, I think I've probably made it pretty clear that I did prefer um, The Look of Silence. Uh, I didn't necessarily, I still think that there is kind of a ceiling to how much can be uh, accomplished with this confrontative style of completely uncooperative people. But there is more to observe here and a uh, little less barriers to entry as far as uh, being concerned about any kind of internal contradictions and the length I think is a big part of it too. And the kind of deeper focus that it has. Um, so that, yeah, that is where I land with that. I do think that the whole thing is a worthy project and it absolutely has the best of intentions wherever you land on it. And it will definitely be interesting to see what Oppenheimer does next, especially if he's going outside of the realm of documentaries now. So that's kind of a, another big unknown that I'm looking forward to seeing. But uh, what about you, Seth? You've got to pick one. I've got to pick one? You have to pick one or I'm coming over there. This is such a strange thing. <laughs> like, which, which one of these is the one you want to throw on or something? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think this is the, the better film. I do think Active Killing, and maybe it is because I saw one first, I don't know, but that one was just like an unforgettable, like meditative experience that it, like, it was like capital E experience that I felt like I weathered. It was like a very moving thing to behold. Um, so I, I, I do think if, if, I, if I'm talking preference, that one is, it really did strike me, but I, I, I do really love the, the look of silence in a in its own right because it it does still do a lot of what I love about the act of killing it is still like just on an artifice level like really beautiful like the photography and the way that it's all set up is just uh, again because I, I just think that that could be like such a an unsatisfactory fate of this subject matter that if it just becomes as much as I don't want it to be like dramatized or like like put in some like candy coated like wild package that the packaging is still important. Uh, it would be a shame that it wasn't dealt with in an artful way. And I think this is so interesting just with like how it centers both it zeroes in both on a particular little microcosm rather than like looking at it from like the major players we're going inward now. And it is about just like, kind of a, a nobody in this play like for in 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 a certain respect on the playing field who we are just following because which is great to see because he is just as important as um any anyone else in this story his story is very important and i and i love the interrogation of people who are also just very ordinary down the street uh the whole eye doctor scene is very intense and like again like interrogate some of the things that like maybe i have holdouts about the act of killing which is like hey you don't ask questions like joshua does like yes this goes goes a little deeper and a little harder um there is something here that um i don't know just about the people who are on off who are off camera outside of history that are maybe the sons and daughters of the perpetrators or the victims and how they like now go, they have to live in this society now, which in a way is fascinating on its own. 
which I, I, we kind of live with as Americans. Like, how am I going to just continue going forward when I know that our forefathers did what they did? Um, that, that I found very, very intriguing on its own, like a whole new level of interest. Uh, yeah, powerful. I could keep talking about these movies for another podcast. I feel like there's a lot here, um, but I could stop there, I guess. You can shoot me now. <laughs> I, th- I think that The Act of Killing is a singular piece of art. I think it's one of the greatest documentaries ever made. Um, I, I I do think that it's in, more inaccessible. I think it's harder to get into. It's, it's more demanding. It's uglier. It's un- more unpleasant. Um, but I do think that there's nothing like it. Uh, but the look of silence, it, I think, is much more accessible. It gives you someone to root for, <laughs> which I think goes a long way with most audiences. Uh, so I definitely think it's the one that maybe people should watch first, and then if they really want to like gaze into the abyss, go to Act of Killing. I, like uh, I think that they could walk away with a better experience at the look of silence and go like, okay, good enough for me. I don't need to stare at these people anymore. But if they want more, then I, th- I think you go to you level up to the next one. Uh, so as far as like recommending it to people, I would say look of silence first and then act of killing second, if you want to go all the way with it. All right. That's a good compromise. We will need to make a list of other movies where this, it'd be best to do the sequel first. And then if you're interested, go back to the original. I'll have to think about that. Maybe the Godfather. Yeah. At least then you'll have. Yeah. 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 Star Wars. Yep. (laughs) Cool. Very comparable films. Well, John, thank you so much. It was great to get the perspective of somebody who is so well-versed in documentary films, as well as having a particular relationship with this series. And uh, I want to make sure that we reiterate again uh, about your new movie that is coming out. Uh, Anything else that you want to plug or put out there? I understand that you said something about a publishing company as well. You got a book. Yeah. So, uh, first off, thank you for having me on. I I really appreciated appreciated this. Uh, And I love these movies. Uh, I've loved them forever. And so I'm happy to talk about them forever with anyone. so yeah, my next documentary is Don't Fall in Love with Yourself. Uh, we're doing screenings all summer, uh, and then it'll be coming out on streaming and physical later on in the fall. Uh, and I also have a small publishing company called With an X uh, that I started this past year. Uh, we have three books out so far where we just announced our fourth book. It's a book called But God Made Him a Poet. Uh, and it's all about uh, John Ford's entire body of work, but from a 21st century political perspective where he tries to sort of like pick up, pick apart like the morality of his aesthetics and like all of the contradictions. I mean, he was a socialist, but he also hated communists. Uh, he showed very racist portrayals of native Americans, but at the same time, he like literally lived on, on reservations with tribes, like, and he had like per, very personal relationships with them. So he's a very thorny, influential, complicated person to look at. So uh, that book's about by Scout Tafoya, who writes for RogerDeeper.com. He's my favorite video essayist ever. Future guest, by the way, on Unwatchable. Spoiler. Oh, spoiler. Awesome. awesome, awesome. So we'll be doing a bunch of uh, other books. I have like six other ones in the works, but I can't really say anything now. But uh, it's nice. It's nice having uh, smaller projects where I can work with a lot of other artists that I really admire uh, and not have it take like five to seven years in between each thing being finished like a movie. So it's been something I've really been throwing myself into. Uh, and I think it's going to reap some really good rewards. I'm really excited about it. 
Great. Do you have like a website uh, or Twitter or something you use mainly? Uh, yeah, my personal one is uh, John Nix Film, J-O-N-N-I-X Film. Uh, and I, my website for my publishing company is with an xbooks.com. All right. So that is where you can find John and his handsome chin, uh, all over the internet. (laughs) We got to laugh at the end of this. (laughs) Absolutely. And check out his documentaries, which will be a lot more fun than the ones that we just talked about. I assume. Yeah. Yeah, they are. So, all right. (laughs) Guaranteed. (laughs) No war criminals in my documentaries. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpitti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Window, 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 window.